Now I'd ask that you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are continuing in our study of Luke's Gospel now, uh, jumping into the 17th chapter. It's good to be back with you after one uh, brief week away for a vacation. And as uh, Andrew finished out uh, the chapter 16, speaking of hell last week and the the dangers of sin and unbelief, so also we will pick up on a similar theme this week, temptations to sin, and moving through our need for faith in dealing with sin and forgiveness among our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're reading, studying together today, Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and reading through verse 10. You can find that on page 876, if you happen to have an ESV. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and reading through verse 10. Before we read this word together, please join me again in a word of prayer and ask God's blessing upon it. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired the words that we're about to read. We thank you that they are true, that they are righteous altogether, and we pray that that same Holy Spirit would be in the hearts of your people so that we would come away hearing and knowing what you have for us. Give us faith, O Lord, increase our faith that we would be people who walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We'll hear now God's word as we find it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. Phil Riken uh, retells the true story uh, that has come down through, through missionaries and contacts and places that know about such things. He retells the true story of an African woman who was converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And just as we've prayed for our persecuted brothers and sisters today, so it is uh, for this woman, so it was in her culture that it was a dangerous thing to be brought to Christ in faith. Her newfound Christianity represented a threat. It represented a threat to Uh, the authority of her husband. It represented a threat to the religion of her ancestors. And particularly in her case, because her husband was the Zulu chief of the village where they lived, it represented a shame upon the entire community. 
And so when her husband found out, he, he forbade her from going back to the meeting where she had first heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And when she disobeyed, when she obeyed God rather than man, we might say, when she returned to that gospel meeting to hear again more about Jesus Christ, whom she had come to trust as her Savior, her husband found her. And he dragged her out of the village, and he savagely beat her, and he left her for dead. And Riken writes that later, when the man wondered if his wife had survived, he went back out into the bush to look for her. He found her lying on the ground, bleeding and gasping, and not far from death. He scoffed at her faith, and he said, what can your Jesus Christ do for you now? And the woman's eyes fluttered open, and she said very gently, very quietly, He helps me to forgive you. This is one of very many stories, many true accounts that come down to us uh, from the church all over the world that remind us the kind of world that Christians actually live in. Not some fairy tale world, not, not a place where, where Christ's commands are easy and carefree. We live in a world where our flesh wages war against our spirit. We live in a world where evil people entice us. We live in a world where the accuser seeks to devour us. We live in a world where believers are not spared the hurts that accompany humanity's free fall into sin and iniquity. That's the world in which Christians live. And into that world comes Luke chapter 17, verse 2. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Verse 3, actually. And verse 3 there, th those words, they look nice on the page, actually. <laughs> they look like something wonderful and, and altruistic. They look like a kind of innocuous spiritual exercise that Jesus says, you know, this would be good for you. They almost look like the kind of thing that the psychologists tell us would be good for, uh, for self-actualization. It's the kind of thing that will help you sleep at night. If you can just... It's as easy, really, as blowing out a candle. Just take all of those hurts, just take all of those offenses, all of those sins, every nasty word that's ever been spoken against you, everything that anyone has ever done to harm you, and you just, you just breathe it out. Just release it, just let it go, and it seems so nice on the page. But then you think about the people in your life who these words might apply to. And maybe... Maybe you're more righteous than I am. But I bet that there are some people that you find it maybe really hard to forgive. Perhaps there are people in your life that you would find it much easier to cancel than to reconcile with. And you think of those people. You think of their harms against you and suddenly you realize that Jesus is not prescribing psychological therapy in a vacuum chamber somewhere. Jesus is calling us to spiritual warfare. When he calls us to forgive those who sin against us, he's commanding us to do something that sometimes seems impossible to us. No wonder the apostles immediately turn and pray for more faith. No wonder Jesus goes on to give an example of roots that sink down deeper into the earth than we can comfortably dig them up ourselves. 
Real forgiveness is difficult. Real forgiveness is expensive. And our Savior knows firsthand the cost of forgiving sins that are directed against Him. And that's why, for all those who will follow Him, He makes forgiveness, deep forgiveness, free forgiveness, lavish forgiveness, like the kind that we see here. He makes it the lifestyle of faith for all of His people. He lays this command on all of those who would follow Him. If your brother turns to you and says, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him, He says. Not just for the sake of of building bridges, not just for the sake of self-actualization, not just for the sake of sleeping better at night. You must forgive him because that is what your Savior has done for you. And if you will follow him, you must walk in the same way in which he also walked. Now this command that we find to forgive, actually it comes in this larger context of, of taking sin seriously. It's a natural transition. You remember, if you were here last week, uh, Jesus warned us about the conscious, eternal torments of hell. And sin is that proverbial handbasket that takes human souls to that terrible place. Sin is the wall that separates that which is human from that which is holy. Sin is the disease that leaves us without God, without hope in this world. Sin is is the problem that occasioned the Incarnation. We've just come out of the Christmas season not long ago, celebrating the Incarnation week after week. Why was it that the Incarnation happened? Why was it that the eternal Son of God came to earth and took on human flesh? It was to show us that sin is not something that we just trifle with. It's not something that can be swept under some rug somewhere and forgotten. Sin is the sort of thing that has to be dealt with. It has to be atoned for. And the overall message of of our passage today is that if we understand anything about who Jesus is, if we know why he's come into the world, then we're going to take sin very seriously. We're going to take sin seriously enough that we will avoid leading others into our sin. We're going to take it seriously enough that we avoid leaving others in their own sin. Those are the two halves of the first portion that we find here. First, that disciples of Jesus Christ will refuse to lead others into their own sin. Take a look again at verses 1 and 2. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus is making a a comparative statement, a statement of value. One thing is better than the other. It is better to die a horrible and instantaneous death than to draw others into sin, to lay a stumbling block in the faith of one of his beloved children. That's the word there that's translated. You see the footnote if you have an ESV. Uh, The word in verse 1 is a scandala in the Greek, a, a stumbling block something that causes spiritual harm. It's like a hidden root in your hiking path. It's covered in in the leaves that have fallen, and you don't see it until it's too late, and you've tripped over it, and you become immobilized by this thing. It's It's something that causes spiritual harm to God's people, some temptation, some enticement, some offense. 
And we live in a world where those stumbling blocks are inevitable. But woe to the one, he says. He doesn't actually tell us what the woe is. He tells us what's what's easier than the woe. He doesn't tell us how bad the woe is, but coming out of the passage that we've seen, perhaps we get a sense for, for just what is at stake. At least for the unbeliever. It's got to be different for the believer because we, we don't believe in Christ and gain salvation and then, and then inadvertently lead others into sin and lose salvation. That's not what he's saying. So maybe there's, there's something else going on here. He doesn't tell us what the woe is, but he does say, here's what would be better than that woe, to be drowned in the depths of the ocean. Better that than to lay a stumbling block for his beloved children. And those stumbling blocks are laid all the time. They're laid by unbelievers when they persecute believers. Those offenses, those, those scandals are laid. Anytime violent mobs in, in places of the world give so much fear to believers that they silence them and silence their witness so that parents don't even tell their children about the faith that they have for fear that their children will inadvertently report them and their parents will be carted away to a, a camp somewhere. It happens. Still happens. And it's a stumbling block. It happens unintentionally sometimes when careless believers don't keep a watch on their words. Maybe it happens on the way home from church some weeks. And just a few words that you're not paying attention to and you, you say something snarky, you, you say something, a, a few harsh words about so-and-so in the other pew and how they always seem so smug. Seems like such a small thing, but the little ears in the back seat are listening, aren't they? They're learning how to think about God's people. They're learning how to gossip. They're learning how to judge. It's a stumbling block. Teachers. Teachers lay stumbling blocks through false doctrine. We lay stumbling blocks for those who are, who are least in the faith when we take the gospel and we twist it ever so slightly to make it more palatable in our wider culture. We, we lay stumbling blocks when we take the gospel and we downplay the exclusive claims of Christ as the only way to salvation. We say, maybe there's something else. I don't want to be offensive. So I'll leave the door open. I'll let you figure that out for yourself. And that's a stumbling block. Men and women slay stumbling blocks when they entice others to join them in wickedness for their own gratification. It happens when believers exercise Christian liberties, but they exercise them in the ways that they don't really care at all about the, the believers who are watching from the sidelines, who may be lured into something that is too much for them. That's Paul's concern in, in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, the way that the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Jesus is saying much the same thing. Far better, he says, far better to sleep with the fish than to become an occasion for sin among his fledgling believers, among God's little ones. And if we think that sounds too harsh, the problem is with us. The problem is that we don't take sin seriously enough. We don't think it's as dreadfully dangerous as Jesus is. When we think about the seriousness of sin, we're, we're thinking about our own comfort and not about the spiritual health of those people who are around us. Jesus is teaching us that his disciples will fight to keep from being a part of this, that they will, they will not allow themselves to lead others into our own sin. 
He says, we'll also refuse to leave others in their sin. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Notice that golden chain there, that chain reaction from sin to rebuke to, re to repentance to forgiveness. That's the end goal there at the end, the, the forgiveness aspect. That's what we ought to be going toward when sin shows up among our body from person to person, from believer to believer. We ought to look at every occasion of sin and say, how can this move toward forgiveness? Because if we neglect the steps to get from the sin to the forgiveness, or, or maybe if we take some of the steps in between, but we don't take them actually getting, trying to go for forgiveness. We're trying for something else, something for ourselves, something cathartic, really. We, yeah, I'll rebuke. I'll do that. That seems good. It feels nice to put somebody else in their place, actually. If that's the attitude that we have, we're missing the point. The rebuke in verse 3 isn't about judgmentalism. It's not about a way to nitpick everyone else whose spiritual standards aren't up to your snuff. The goal of this rebuke in verse 3, it's, it's repentance that leads to forgiveness. Maybe that's why many of us never personally apply this command to rebuke. Maybe we do it in our, our families, almost never in the church. We do it with those who are stuck with us, right? We'll rebuke them, and it's safe. But, but when we get into the church, when we get into people who, who don't have to be around us, well, we, we, never, we never get to this rebuke. We don't rebuke because rebuke is awkward. Rebuke is difficult. And to do it correctly means that we have to begin with concern for our fellow believers and not for concern for how we're going to be perceived. We don't rebuke because we've bought the lie that says someone else's spiritual business is none of my business. That's not true in the church, actually. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You should restore him, Paul says. That is, you should bring him back. You should lead him out of sin and into restoration, into repentance, so that you can extend the grace of forgiveness. Now this calls for wisdom, doesn't it? Calls for wisdom to know when and how to apply this. Because if we take this and we apply it to every sin around us, we will inevitably do nothing but deal with other people's sin. We can become like those people who are, who are so concerned with every other speck in everyone else's eye that we never notice the log that is in our own. And that's not the point. This calls for wisdom. Not every occasion of sin is going to call for a formal public rebuke. Like oftentimes, the way that we deal with sin is to let love cover a multitude of offenses. And there are sins where that is legitimately the best thing to do, but there are other sins. There are sins in the lives of, of God's people that tarnish the name of Christ in the world, or even among our church. There are, there are sins that lead to bitterness and spiritual destruction and, and sinful enslavement. There are sins that threaten the peace of God's people living together in harmony, as we're told we ought to. And actually to leave those sins unrebuked is a sin in itself. Brothers and sisters, take sin seriously. Take sin seriously enough to refuse to leave others in their own sin. 
expose the works of darkness so that forgiveness can reign among God's people. And the difficult part about this passage, though, is the, is the limits, or really the lack thereof, the, the limitlessness of the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here. Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day, he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now you understand what Jesus is doing here. He's not giving us the upper limit of forgiveness. He's not saying, you must forgive up to seven times, but if that scoundrel sins one more time, if he goes to number eight, well, then you've got him. <laughs> then you can hold a grudge all you want. That's not what Jesus is saying. Seven is, is one of those biblical numbers, like, like three, like 12, like 40. It, it represents perfection. That's why in Matthew chapter 18, the number is 70 times 7. 490 times your brother sins against you and comes back and says, I repent, and he says you must forgive him. Forgiveness again and again and again and again. Forgiveness actually that looks a lot like the forgiveness we have received from Christ himself. Do you notice that as we gather together week after week, year after year, we do some of the same things every time we gather in one corporate body. One of the things that we do is we corporately confess our sins. We did it this week, we're going to do it next week if the Lord doesn't come before then. Those people that God has forgiven once come again acknowledging that the power of sin is still at work so long as we live in these mortal bodies. We acknowledge that we, we week in and week out those, those things that we want to do, we don't. And those things that we don't want to do, we end up doing. And Christ's people come again week after week to confess, to repent, to be assured that through the atoning death of Christ, there's forgiveness to cover all of our sins. And that's the kind of forgiveness, not that we can atone for anyone else, but that's the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to extend to one another. Seven times a day, he says. Seventy times seven. Again and again. In the fifth century, Cyril of Alexandria compared forgiveness to the work of a physician. He said, we are to imitate those whose business is to heal bodily diseases, who do not care for a sick person only once or twice, but just so as often as he happens to become ill. And to quote some of the, the scholars on this verse, Jesus is calling us to a forgiveness that is boundless, they say. That is total, that is immeasurable, that is limitless, that is habitual. He's calling us to a forgiveness that looks like his. That raises all kinds of questions in our minds. Questions like, how could somebody truly be repentant if seven times in the day they have to repent of the same sin? What's going on here? Questions like, where does church discipline come into all of this? Questions like, what are we supposed to do with the after effects of sin that will last long beyond sometimes and the heinous sins that are sinned against God's people? What are we to do with the after effects of sin that last long after the person asks for repentance? And those are good questions. And they're questions that God's word will speak to in other places. But to quote Kent Hughes, Jesus places here the burden of responsibility on the person who's forgiving rather than on the person who's repenting. 
That is, we can deal with all of those other questions at other times, but if we come to this passage and we're looking for a reason not to forgive our brothers and sisters, to put a limit on how often we ought to extend the grace of forgiveness to them, then we haven't heard Jesus at all. The main teaching of this passage is that Christ's disciples will take sin seriously. We'll take it so seriously that we'll do everything we can to help our brothers and sisters live from the freedom, in freedom from sin's power. It involves not leading others into our sin, and it involves not leaving others in their sin. Now, when the apostles heard these words, they did the smartest thing they could have done. Oftentimes, we see the apostles and the things that they say and the things that they do in the Gospels, and we go, they really just don't even get it. <laughs> Not so here. This is the perfect response in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now the transition actually between verses 4 and verses 5 is so abrupt. And if you have the ESV, it puts a different subject heading there. And some of the connections between the paragraphs that we're looking at today aren't immediately clear. And so, so many scholars think that there is a change in subject when we get to verse 5, that we're starting all over again with a new teaching, with a different sort of point to a sermon that goes in another direction. But in the Gospels, actually forgiveness and faith go together. Consider, for example, Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus tells the other version of this, uh, this mulberry tree parable. There in Mark 11, verse 23, he's talking about mountains that can be uprooted and planted in the sea by, by faith that works as, as God intends it. And then the very next verses, verse 24, Jesus concludes, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Verse 25, and whatever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You hear the way that Jesus moves effortlessly, almost organically, from faith to forgiveness. Well, in this passage, the disciples, the apostles, are working in the opposite direction. Jesus has called them to limitless forgiveness, forgiveness in the extreme, forgiveness that pardons whatever sins have been committed against them, no matter how repetitive, no matter how heinous. And they sense in themselves that as they are, they are inadequate for what Jesus is calling them to. They sense that what they need is God's power at work in them to make them sufficient for the task. And so they do not cry out, Lord, make us more patient. Make us more tolerant. Make us more understanding. Make us slower to anger. They say, Lord, increase our faith. It was the right prayer but maybe you've never considered the connection between those two, between faith and forgiveness. The connection becomes clear when you consider what exactly forgiveness costs you. What do you have to give up? What, what do you have to leave aside in order to forgive others for their sins against you? I suppose if the sins are small enough, if they're, if they're easy enough, maybe if you know the person well enough, it doesn't cost you much at all. As somebody says a few harsh words, and you know what it's like. You've said harsh words about other people before. And they haven't traveled very far. They haven't, they haven't left too many ripples in, in the church yet, and, and your reputation's still intact, and that's okay, and you can forgive them, and you can just look the other way, and no big deal. 
Often that's how it happens. But, but what if those same harsh words have already made it to the wrong people? What if they weren't simply a moment's anger, but they were pent-up aggression, that they never spoke to your face, they were, they were critical words that, that perhaps you should have heard instead of being spoken to somebody else, and now your reputation is at stake, not just in the church, but maybe outside of the church, maybe at work. What are we to think of those sins that in a literal sense could cost you your earthly possessions? What are we to think of those sins that steal your ability to close your eyes at night without reliving scenes and details of abuse that you have endured? What about sins committed in a marriage? What about betrayals that set fire to years of trust and intimacy that a couple builds together and in a moment they're all gone? What does it cost you to forgive those sins? You know, often the difficulty of forgiving others is the difficulty of releasing the debts that we feel we are owed. That's really the, behind the idea in the New Testament of, of the word afiemi, to release, to forgive. It means to take a debt and to cancel it and to say, I, I no longer need restitution for that. That's what forgiveness is. It's absorbing a debt rather than demanding repayment. And so the question is, what does, what does forgiveness cost you in all of these circumstances? The challenge is not seeking very often what we think is rightfully ours. And that's where the need for faith comes in. Jesus gives his, his apostles this illustration. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> he gives this illustration of what faith can do when you put it to work. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, these are the words of our Savior. They are faithful. They are true. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are inerrant in every way. Yet I don't think Jesus is actually trying to encourage us to speak to, truths, to trees and uproot them by our faith. That's not the application. And if you look throughout the annals of, of church history, except for some apocryphal claims by, by some people on the fringes, you won't find any saint ever doing this. The point is not to teach us how to garden by faith. The point is to give us a vivid example of something that is impossible for us, but completely possible for the God of creation. So that we would believe that he's able to do what we are not able to do for ourselves. He is the God who flung the stars into their orbits. He's the God who sets the boundaries for the seas. He's the God who waters and nourishes every tree on every hill and every forest. He's the God who can make anything grow wherever he wants. And he's the one who can pluck up whatever he wants. He is the God who sent his Son into the world to bear the burden of our sin. He is the God who in Christ chooses not to demand restitution from sinners. He is the God who freely chooses to forgive his people again and again and again. And he is the God who can put his forgiving spirit in our hearts. He can weed out our deeply rooted sense of needing to be repaid when we are wrong. He can assure us that he has borne our burdens, that he will repay us with all that we require, that we can be satisfied with what he provides for us. And what we need in order to forgive others is to believe exactly that. 
Because when you believe that, when you trust it, when you know that this is what God in Christ is doing for you, well, then, then forgiveness starts to shrink, doesn't it? It turns from this immovable mountain into a tiny pebble. The kind of thing that you can, you can toss in your pocket, and if you have to carry it with you somewhere, pretty soon you forget to notice how heavy it is. So maybe if there's somebody that you need to forgive, the best thing to do is to pray the prayer of the apostles. Oh Lord, increase my faith. Help me to trust that you have taken my burden. Help me to trust that you have given me free life in Jesus. Help me to believe that you have forgiven my debts so that I may forgive my debtors. Now by the time we get to the closing verses, in this passage, Jesus is putting forgiveness in perspective. So far, we've mostly been talking about how difficult forgiveness is, and if you've been seriously sinned against, you know that difficulty firsthand. But in verses 7 to 10, Jesus reminds us that even if forgiveness is difficult, it is merely a function of basic Christian faithfulness. It's not just the kind of thing that that radiates from those believers who are so holy that they seem to have a glow about them. It's basic Christian duty. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Notice the way that he, he draws in the apostles, the ones who are listening to them. He starts to tell them this parable, and he begins from the standpoint of the master. Which of you having a servant, he says. Oh, well, it's nice to have a servant, doesn't it? Isn't it? It's nice to be the master. It's nice to have other people uh, answer to your beck and your call. And who knows what, what they're expecting as he begins to talk about how masters treat their servants. Maybe they're, they're waiting for some application where Jesus is going to say something like, you know, if you're my people, you're masters, and, and you should expect any of those sinners to respond immediately when you expose their sin. They should come to you in repentance right away. Maybe that's what they're waiting for. Maybe, maybe these apostles, these 12 pillars of the church, maybe they're waiting for Jesus to say, you know, you're going to be the spiritual leaders. And the church is going to have to answer to you when, when you do these things. Who knows what they're waiting for, but they probably didn't think that Jesus was going to end the teaching by putting them in the servant's place. It's almost a bait and a switch by the time we get to verse 10. He's talking about masters. He's talking about masters. He's talking about masters. Verse 10, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, that's not what we want to hear about forgiveness. We know how our hearts work. <laughs> we know that if we've gone to the effort of refusing to seek restitution from those who've wronged us, the least we should expect is that someone is going to pat us on the head and tell us what good Christian boys and girls we've been, right? I knew a man, a brother in Christ years ago, who would always say the same thing anytime he had to deal with difficult people. As he was dealing with difficult people, if anyone ever mentioned how, how patient, how kind, how forgiving he was, he would always say, oh, that's okay, they're just helping me to polish my crown. And he would say it tongue-in-cheek. But truth be told, many of us actually expect that sort of thing. We expect that when we do the things that Jesus has called us to, forgiving one another again and again and again, just as he has forgiven us, we expect that when we get to heaven, Jesus is, or God and, and, and Christ will, will stop and they'll put the spotlight on us and they'll point us out to the angels and say, there he is. 
There's the one who forgave when, when nobody else would have. Look at him. Look at her. Here she is. Welcome her. She's home. And a pat on the back. And maybe in a different passage, there are some things that we see about that. And, and yes, Jesus actually, he balances this back in chapter 12 with the master who, who calls his servants in and he has them sit down and the master serves them. But again, that's a picture for another time. What Jesus is teaching us now is that when we have done these very difficult things, when we call out to the Lord to fill us with faith, when he gives us his Holy Spirit to forgive, even when that forgiveness seems impossible, that's not miraculous Christianity. That's basic Christian faithfulness. That means that the amazing thing about people like our sister in Africa that we began with today. The amazing thing about people like that is that, that they do not show us a Christianity of miraculous proportions. They show us Christianity in its most basic form. They show us a Christianity that takes Christ's commands seriously. They show us a discipleship that believes the gospel enough to apply it to daily life and to daily forgiveness. Not for recognition, not, not for some spiritual payback, not for polishing our crown or laying aside a, a mansion in glory with streets of gold. That's what Christian faithfulness does because Christ has already done it for us. And he calls his people to walk where he walks. He calls us to have faith enough to forgive even when forgiveness seems impossible. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would increase our faith. That you would help us as poor sinners, as lowly servants, to do that which you have commanded us. And we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would so work in our hearts, work in our lives, that we would be conformed to the image of and to the forgiveness of Christ. Oh Lord, thank you for saving us to yourself, for covering all of our sin and absorbing the cost of our iniquity. Thank you for the cross of Christ, which has fully paid for all of our sins. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be those who go into the world knowing that we are free, free in you to forgive those who sinned against us. Help us to do it. For your name's sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.